Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, January 31st, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Peter Felicia. Jenna has been writing about theater for more than 10 years with numerous publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, and Howl Rounds. She's a voting member of the Drama Desk Awards and is a contributor to Broadway Radio. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, James. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. Also with us is Peter Felicia. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian. With a number of books, his columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. And also with us is a very special guest. Diane Paulus is with us. Broadway fans will know Diane. You know, I guess the uh, debut was in the revival of Hair back in 2009. Then we did Porgy and Bess and then Pippin, Finding Neverland, Waitress, Jagged Little Pill. And coming up in the future is 1776. Diane, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and talking with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. So, Diane, let's... uh get a little bit of the bio out of the way. Where you, uh, where did you hail from and how did you get involved in theater? Yeah, I was going to ask that as well. Uh, Cy Coleman wrote a show called Pamela's First Musical with Wendy Wasserstein and David Zippel. What was Paulus's first musical? Oh, you know, I, 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 um, I was just thinking about this because I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, a forward for a, uh, a book that's coming out by Rutledge on the American musical. And I was thinking about my personal journey. And I think my first musical was the movie of Oliver. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if, if you recall that movie and, and I, I went to it and I think my, you know, the family story is my parents famously gave me like licorice, like a long red licorice <laughs> so that I wouldn't talk during the movie. Um, and then I, I remember falling asleep to that album every single night. I, I mean, literally I would not go to bed. You know, I was just a couple of years old and I would just go to sleep listening to that album of Oliver and I, and I it made me think about you know musicals and how they enter our lives and uh, so often it's not always being in the presence of the actual live event of the musical but it's the musical score or a movie version but somehow um, you know musicals get into um, you know our, our zeitgeist in a way that has always fascinated me and and uh, you know is is part of my passion for working in the musical theater form. Okay, but um, that's a movie. So when they told you that these things were done live as well, uh, when did that happen? (laughs) Yeah, well, to your first question of how I got involved, you know, um, I grew up in New York City. So I was um, in a a location where I had easy exposure to theater and the arts. And my dad actually had been an actor. Uh, he was born in 1913. So, you know, just to give a sense of his lifetime, he's passed away. But um, he actually uh, did theater and he became a director and um, was directing plays for the Army Entertainment Corps during the American occupation of Japan after World War II, um, where he met my mother who was Japanese and, uh, you know, they, they began their love affair and eventually she came to America and they started a family. But I, I only say that because I, I do believe 
you know, we, we, we stand on the shoulders of so many, um, you know, no matter what we do in life. And, and I, I did have that moment because when I was born, uh, my dad had left the theater. He was working for CBS and live television. So I really never knew my dad as a theater guy. He was, mm-hmm. uh, he worked in television. He was a producer and, and worked at CBS. But m- many, many years later, I, I uncovered an article in the Stars and Stripes, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, right. newspaper mm-hmm. that, that, that was reporting on activities in Tokyo. And, and there was a picture of my dad saying, you know, Larry Paulus pulling his hair out because today premiere of the show, you know, and he can't get it together. And I thought, oh, my <laughs> God, now I know why I'm a director. Like <laughs> this lineage back to my dad. So, of course. You know, I grew up in New York. My dad, you know, this was in the era before the Internet. Obviously, when you clip things from the newspaper, he had Mm -hmm. everywhere of shows and and, and cultural events. And, you know, I I, I went to the theater. I was at I was I was at Broadway, you know, taken to Broadway by my parents when I was a little kid. And I grew up near Lincoln Center where where I where I grew up in Lincoln Towers, you know, on the West Uh And sure. I would yeah. you know, walk through Lincoln Center kind of every day and play in Damrush Park. And my older sister was a musician, so there was a harp in the living room. Like my whole life was, you know, very much exposed to to culture and the arts. Um, my mother loved the opera. You know, she always used to say opera was the ultimate art form. I think that had a huge impact on me. I always wanted to direct opera, which I eventually got to do much later mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in my journey. But um, you know, theater and arts were kind of like a, a, a part of my life, you know, and I, I played piano when I was a little girl um, because music was a big deal in my family. And I was maybe going to pursue that. I was, I was kind of good at piano and my parents were pushing me to maybe consider the Juilliard program. And I, I remember having this moment when I was maybe 10 years old thinking, you know, I don't want to sit alone and practice for four to five hours. Uh-huh. I had this clarity of, you know, what I love to do was to be in a group. And um, so I, I kind of changed my course and I, I, I got into this children's theater company in the 1970s in New York that was called the First All Children's Theater. And it was a professional children's theater company. And I did that for many years. And that was a huge influence on me and sure um what type of fair did this children's theater do was it um stuff like uh, sleeping beauty or was it um uh, sweet charity what yeah you know the first children's theater was was run by a woman named Meredith stein and what was remarkable about it is we did original musical theater wow so we did a show by liz Rose called the incredible feeling show we did a, a, a show by charles strauss and Richard Peasley, I mean, you wow. know, so you're 11 years old and you're working on musicals. <laughs> wow. So I think, um, and, and, uh, you know, we would do benefits, um, on Broadway. You know, I remember being a little kid and, and being in the basement of, I'm pretty sure it was the Schubert theater hmm. you know, for, for a benefit for the children's theater company. Um, so I, I had exposure to, to this, you know, collaborative process and, and the kind of, work behind the scenes in terms of what it takes to do, do musical theater. And I think the other huge influence was I I had also uh, been a, been a ballet dancer as a kid. Right. So I, I was in the school of American ballet, which was also a couple blocks from my house. And when I was really little, like eight, nine, 10, I did all those ballets that, 
Balanchine. He was still alive. Wow. You know, so I, I did Nutcracker. I did Harlequinade. I did Midsummer Night's Dream. I danced in Coppelia. And I remember being a kid standing in the wings of the, it was then called the State Theater and, and watching Balanchine work with Suzanne Farrell and Patricia McBride. Wow. And of course, Balanchine was the great choreographer of story ballets. Mm-hmm. So I think I was also exposed, you know, specifically to what storytelling can be done, of course, that without words, but through dance and spectacle. And I mean, the first ballet I did was the Firebird. I was a flower pot. In the <laughs> oh, wow. I like came on for five <laughs> seconds, literally at the end of the ballet, we stood with giant flower pots on the, on our head. <laughs> you know, that, that was the first thing I ever did. And I, you know, I was hooked. <laughs> there are no small parts, right? No exactly. Small parts. <laughs> exactly. Just, just small flower pots. <laughs> I, I would love to hear what made you think, you know, direction was the best thing for you rather than dancing or, mm-hmm. or instrumental music. Yeah. It's, it's such a good question because I, I went to, um, I went to college actually. I, I was a student at Harvard, and and when I went to college, I actually thought I I wanted to go into politics, hmm. um, and and I had the secret you know dream of one day being the mayor of New York. That was kind of you know I think my idealistic self. I grew up in the seventies in New York, and I there's still time. I was going to say, I mean, <laughs> you can't do much worse. That never mind, never mind. <laughs> You know, you know, it's funny that I, I, I have thought about that, but I, I really think my journey in life has showed me um, the power of how, you know, the theater and the arts can help um, make the world a better place, how we can impact change and, you know, create community. So I, I only mention it because I I was a, a you know, highly active in, in high school. Um, you know, I was marching for the ERA movement. I, I was lobbying in Albany for Planned Parenthood. Uh, you know, I was uh, marching against nuclear, for nuclear disarmament. This was all in the early 80s. Um, so it, it felt like a logical extension to, to think about a career in politics. And I, I, I interned my freshman summer at my, after my first year at college for uh, the then councilwoman for the Upper West Side, Ruth Messenger, who people mm, yeah. know mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're, you know, if you know New York City politics, um, and and uh, I I had this big experience with 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 Ruth Messenger and Gail Brewer, who was her, I think, chief of staff then, where I was sent to all these committees um, to represent her, and I remember going to this meeting for the coalition of the homeless and my job, I was, you know, all of 19 years old was to sit there and say, well, Ruth messenger supports their work. And, you know, is very grateful for everything you do. And I did that. And then the, everyone in that committee meeting just like ignored me and went on to plan how they were going to get the food to the homeless and the van route. And it was, I think it was like a chalkboard back then and all the planning went. And I, I had this feeling of like, I want to be like in the van and the truck in the trenches. <laughs> you know, I just had this, this feeling that the, the, the as- this aspect of politics wasn't for me. And I wanted to be more in the production of things. And of course, what I was doing with all my free time was theater. I was making theater at Harvard. I was acting in shows. I had started directing plays and sort of thought, oh, gosh, maybe what I love is the theater and maybe I can affect change um, and impact the world uh, through the theater. Uh, So it's a long way of answering your question, why I became a director. I think becoming a director was the way I could do that. You know, I felt um, pursuing acting uh, at the time 
I think it's changed a bit because I think there's a, a big trend in our industry now for actors to be creators. And we, you know, we see so much more agency uh, coming from actors, right? Generative agency of projects and storytelling. But at the time it felt like if you were an actor, you waited for your audition and that was the life of an actor. And I, I, I realized I just wanted to make things happen. I, I wanted to make, make theater. I wanted to do the impossible. So I just, I pursued acting. I got a, 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 a certificate from the, the New Actors Workshop out of Harvard. I went to, to study with George Morrison and Paul Sills and Mike Nichols. And little did I know, I think I was getting my greatest directing training, you know, being in a masterclass with Mike Nichols for two years, um, even though it was an acting school. And when I graduated that that program, I I started directing. I directed plays for free in community gardens on the Upper West Side. I I just wanted to make make things happen with my actor friends and not wait for that audition or that phone call. And I think that started me on my my path of directing. But there you are in Cambridge. You're wa- you're walking on Brattle Street. There's the Loeb Drama Center. Could you have ever imagined that someday you'd be running the place? <laughs> well, I'll tell you a funny story. After this two year acting program, there was there was a night I will never forget. We were like a week you know week away from graduation, and it was those cl- one of those classic moments where it's two a.m. and you're sitting with your actor friends, you know, over a beer, and you're saying, "Where? What do you want to do in life?" You know, and everybody was going around and. People were talking about, you know, I want to go to Hollywood. I want to be in the movies. Oh, my God, if I could just land a soap opera. You know, everybody was sharing their dreams. And I I literally said, I want to be Bob Brustein and run the American. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, wow. And I think all, all my actor friends were like, what's that? You know, they 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 didn't know, you know, much about Bob Brustein or that theater. And I was like, well, you, don't, you, you guys don't understand. It's the most incredible theater, you know, at Harvard and Cambridge and Boston and I had seen in the 80s, you know, Andre Serban, Julie Taymor, Ann Bogart, Joanne Acolytis, many works by Robert Wilson. I mean, even having grown up in New York, seen a lot of theater, the work I saw at ART in the 1980s just put a wedge in my brain, you know, about what theater could be, that kind of explosion of theatricality that was going on at ART in the 80s. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I, uh, my, my great mentor, Ann Bogart, talks about the violence of articulation. You know, you, you say something and then you get you just start taking steps towards that reality. So, you know, 20 years later, I found myself, you know, um, with my with my hat in the ring for that job. And, and now I sit in the office uh, where Bob Brustein, uh, you know, used to, uh, you know, hold court um, and, and one last little piece to this, which I think is another uh, piece to the story. When I was a student at Harvard, there was no theater major, but I did my thesis on the living theater. I just got really interested in the political theater of the 1960s. Um, of course, you know, understandably, right, thinking about my interest in groups and being part of a group and also the living theater, they really had an agenda to to change society. They had a pacifist anarchist dream of what the theater could change, right, in the world. Um, and I and I remember interviewing Bob Brustein in my now office when uh, I was undergrad in Harvard, because, of course, he famously brought the living theater back to the United States after they were in exile. Yeah. In, for taxes, in, right? Yeah, in, yeah. For taxes, they came back in '68, and they were at Yale. So, um, it's 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 a crazy full circle for me to be uh, now at the ART and back at Harvard. Wow. Uh, go ahead, Jenna. No, no. 
Well, there were not an awful lot of women directors uh, at the time, uh, certainly none who had won a Tony Award yet, and particularly not Asian American women directors. I mean, what kind of challenges did you face? I mean, in terms of racism, sexism, uh, you know, building everything up? Yeah, you know, I, 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 I really do believe in um, you know, you have to see it to know that it's a possibility for you. And I, I did have uh, strong women examples that I, I, were, I, I know helped me visualize uh, what would be possible. And, and they were, uh, they were Joanna Glitis, uh and Bogart. Mm-hmm. Um, the late, great Lynn Austin, who ran Music Theater Group, she gave me my first job, my first uh-huh. You know, reading that I did as a young director, um, you know, uh, so, so there were women one generation ahead of me who were paving the way. Um, I also have to say, I went to an all-girls school in New York City, the Brearley School, and I, I really credit that education. You know, I was I was there with only other women around me, and there was no question in that school that you could do anything you wanted to mm-hmm. do. You know, you put your hand up, you you could say anything <laughs> you were expected to participate and be a leader. Um, so, so for me, um, that idea that, that, you know, being a woman, uh, you know, was not necessarily the norm. I think I just hit my generation hit where, you know, we, we, we believed we could, you know, I, I'm, I'm very close with Emily Mann because we worked on um, this Gloria. story, Gloria Steinem's life. Mm-hmm. And just to share, you know, the d- difference between Emily's generation and myself, where she was told like, Oh no, a woman can't be a director. Why don't you go consider like maybe children's theater? You know, that was literally <laughs> what was told to her by someone at Harvard. Cause she was a Radcliffe student about her future in the theater, you know, Flash forward to my being at Harvard in the 80s and, you know, being knocked out by Joanna Colitis and thinking, oh, I want to do that. You know, so so I do believe, um, you know, there was there there were people ahead of me that helped make it possible for me to visualize this. I I think, you know, we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go in the theater um, in terms of, uh, you know, representation uh, in leadership. I think. The Broadway piece is a big one because, you know, Broadway is considered a big financial responsibility. And, you know, I often said with Waitress, you know, it got so much attention that it was the first show that was a a full female led team, right? Actually, Liz Suedos did it with Runaways, but she was the director, composer, book writer. (laughs) But in, in terms of a team, we were the first one. And, you know, I was, I've always said with that, you know, we did that because here are women at the top of their field. This is a fact. So here we are, we're just reflecting what's going on in the world. But what I always said, you know, I I always said it wasn't the second half of that sentence is, and we recouped, you know, it's like this, look, Broadway the business. You know, I I wear the hat as a director of a not-for-profit mission-based institution, but I am fully aware that Broadway is a commercial endeavor, which can have social impact aspirations, but that's, you know, you're, you're running on Broadway, as long as you're making money. Um, and I think that was this, um, you know, this, this, this belief that you couldn't entrust, um, frankly, you couldn't entrust directors with, you know, budgets. I mean, all my life growing up was like, you're not going to show the director the budget, you know? And I was like, why not? <laughs> I, think I, I think I grew up in the nineties really as a, as an artist and I had to be an entrepreneur 
was like, you're not going to get money from the NEA. No one in America cares enough to pay for the arts. You're only going to succeed if you can figure out how audiences want to see your shows. Like that was just part of what it meant to be a director. So for me, cracking the business side was, was kind of hand in hand with what it meant to be an artist. So I think that led to saying, yeah, um, you know, okay, I, I, I want to take a show to Broadway. I want to have this opportunity. And I believe a lot of people want to see it. And I'm a woman. And I think I represent the ticket buying demographic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe yes. I can uh, mm-hmm. lend some insight into, you know, what, what, what a large portion of the uh, industry in terms of the, you know, marketing engine wants to see and buy. So um, that's not to say th- there haven't been obstacles, but um, I, 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 I'm encouraged by, you know, uh, the, the people and, and frankly, the, the, the producers and the other partners that in, in, you know, in, embraced my leadership because you need those allies to make it possible. And now we just have to widen the field and, and, and thank you for bringing up the, you know, my Asian American identification. You know, it's, it's a, it's a strange position for me because, I, I grew up my whole life with this Asian American identity. It's, you know, how I fill out my census, but I, I have brown hair and green eyes. And a lot of people don't um, see that in me. And I recognize the privilege I have that, you know, I, I can, as we say, pass as white. And that has afforded me, I think, a certain kind of privilege in terms of, uh, you know, my, my, how I identify. So there's a lot of work to be done, obviously, as we know, in terms of, um, you know, marginalized voices and, and how that has to shift and, you know, how we have to come to terms with uh, representation in the American theater, not only on stage, but behind the scenes. Um, of all your shows, would you like me to tell you which one made me cry? Sure. I hope, I hope more than one, but yes, I'd <laughs> like to hear which one. Johnny Baseball. Oh, my goodness. Well, you see, I'm from Arlington, Massachusetts, right down the street. And um, I've been a baseball fan for a long, long time. So watching that was extraordinarily moving to me. Uh, I'm sorry that, uh, you know, it's 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 had a few productions, I know, since uh, since you did it. But I'm curious as to uh, what made you select it. Are you a baseball fan as well? You know, I, I love sports um, and, and I've, I've always been fascinated by sports. Almost as a theater person, I love sports. And I have a funny story to tell you that about Good. that. I was working with uh, Rob and Willie Reale, the brothers who wrote that show, before I got the ART job. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I'm going to run a theater in Boston. Maybe the Red Sox musical is a good idea. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and the more I, I, I learned about, you know, the, the, the point of view of this story, the more it interested me, you know, the, 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 the lack of integration of African-American ballplayers Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. that particular franchise. So, um, but, but what I want to say about the sports thing is early on, I had never been to Fenway. So um, uh, Willie Reale said, you know, we, we have to take you to Fenway. So we went, we saw a game that the Red Sox were playing. It was at the very end of the season. They were not going to the world series. Uh It was kind of over. Yeah. So they were playing all their second and third string players, you know, and it was, it, they were losing. I don't know. It was something crazy, like, you know, 10 to two or something. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the inning would end and the Fenway audience kind of clapped, you know, like pathetically, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and, and Willie Reale leaned over to me and he said, you hear that, Diane? That's ironic 
applause. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, a, that's the fans going like, well done, Red Sox. Yeah, Couldn't yeah, yeah. You, you're playing great. Yeah. And I remember thinking, holy, you know, whatever. Like I, the idea of ironic applause, I mean, that to me so fascinated me. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just so interested in the audience having a voice and agency. I think it's why I love, you know, it's why I love the theater. It's why I love musical theater. And I thought, you know, could I create an event where the audience would be allowed to have ironic applause? You know, then I think I've accomplished something. So I, uh, I've always been interested in sports and, and the fandom of an audience and the kind of, critique that an audience holds at a sporting event you know i'm, I'm really interested in that role for the audience mm-hmm, mm-hmm. got it uh, the question becomes though uh, did any of your new york friends brand you a traitor for doing a show about the red Sox uh, beating <laughs> the oh okay so you know little did i know i of course i got my red Sox hat and like an idiot i wore it in new york city <laughs> I, 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 I think it's changed frankly now but this was whatever 10 years ago yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, I literally walked one day in New York City with that hat on my head. I had people hiss at me. I had people shake their head at me. I had, um, I think I was at LaGuardia um, because I had taken the shuttle down and someone said, you know, I was like struggling with my bag off the carousel, the luggage carousel. This guy was like, I'm going to help you with your luggage even though you're wearing a red sock hat. I remember I, I said to my husband, man, I was like, wow, this happened to me all in one day. He's like, what were you thinking? You know, wearing your red sock hat in New York City. There's a there's a new red hat that you can't wear in New York City either. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. Yes, yes. That's another story. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yes. And none of us really want to watch it, ever wear it anyway. So, Diane, let me ask you uh, – um, I guess the first time that uh, I ever met you and became aware of you was with the Donkey Show, where uh, you, you you took a young Jordan Roth and made him into a producer. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> tell us about how you got involved with the Donkey Show and this very different take on a Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, so um, I graduated um, from Columbia University, where I got my MFA in directing, and. Um, uh, I, I remember, you know, like like so many young artists thinking like, what am I going to do with my life? What should I do? You know, should I go for that fellowship? Should I do this program? Or, you know, I, I, I could work with these actors that I met at Columbia and work with my now husband, Randy, on, you know, our own work. And I remember asking Ann Bogart what to do. And she did this remarkable thing. She took her finger and she touched my heart. And she said, follow your heart. All your treasures will lie there. I'll never forget that. And I remember, you know, foregoing the fellowship and all these other, you know, programs you could apply to. And I, I, I started working with two actor friends that I had met at Columbia and we started working on this adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream to, to, to disco music. And this was an idea that Randy, my, my, my husband, my then partner, said, you know, he had this idea of adapting the story of Midsummer Night's Dream and setting it in Studio 54, you know, that the enchanted Athenian woods would be that, that mystical, magical, fantastical dance floor of Studio 54. Um, and, you know, side note, Randy and I had grown up in the city. We knew each other in high school. We were at Studio 54, you know, as teenagers. So it was kind of a, a you know, we weren't there in the 70s when it was really cool. But in the early 80s, you know, we, that's what you did. If you were in New York City, you'd go, you'd try to sneak into Studio 54. So we had this memory of it. And um, 
at the time we were thinking about um, disco songs and, and, and the, the two actors we were working with, Anna Wilson and Rachel Murdy, they would go to like the Love Drugstore and buy CDs of compilations of disco songs and they put them on their CD Walkmans and transcribe the lyrics because this was all before the internet, really, where you could mm-hmm. get hear it. And then Randy just said one day, well, you know, it was more like a research project. He's like, well, why would I ever try to like write an original disco song? The disco, you, you can't compete with these existing disco songs. Let's just use the songs themselves. So that was really the birth of the concept. And, you know, we did it. We rehearsed it uh, just, just the four of us for a while. And then we realized it needed more people. So we you know, reached out to more friends from, from the Columbia program and then friends of friends. And then this friend, uh, this actor, uh, Jordan Ruderman, her boyfriend was a DJ and his, his roommate could roller skate. And so it just became this project we put together and we, we rehearsed it for free in the lobby of Dodge Hall at Columbia University after hours because our ID still worked and we could swipe uh. <laughs> rehearse there for free. And then we did it. We did it, um, you know, down in the heyday of the Lower East Side of, you know, Ludlow Street, when all the Toto Kanata and Aaron Bell, when all that downtown art was happening. We did it at midnight, midnight, every Friday and Saturday night in the back of the piano store, which was this front for an old speakeasy. And it was a teeny little room and we took out all the chairs and we borrowed the ro- red rope stanchions from the restaurant across the street. And Randy stood on the sidewalk and and, you know, hawked audiences like two for one, ladies night, you know, money back guarantee. We just we just like we were experimenting and we said, you know, we created this thing. If you came to the show and you liked it, you could sign a VIP list and you could come back and bring another audience member for free. You could be an audience VIP and bring someone back next week who would buy their ticket. And uh, lo and behold, it just started to take off. And and I would stand at the front of the, you know, Ludlow Street and I'd see lines, like a hundred people down the block. And Randy and I would say, like, where is this coming from? And people were saying, Well, like someone emailed my office about this. You know, it was like just the early phases of word of mouth and the internet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were a small aspiring theater company doing other shows, and we had gotten, you know, a, a picture in Time Out and a review in the then Village Voice, and no one was coming to those shows. But somehow this show took off. So we just kept doing it every weekend and then we moved it to the Pyramid Club on Avenue A and we did it Thursday nights and it was, you know, this no one was getting paid. And, you know, I don't know, seven or eight months into this venture, Jordan Roth came into our lives. He originally auditioned for it and was maybe <laughs> Oh wow. He was maybe gonna be one of the, you know, the fairies, Titania's fairies, the kind of like Studio 54 boys. Um, you know, he had just graduated Princeton and I think he was sort of looking for what he wanted to do in his life. And then after the success of the show, he said, you know what, I want to take this and produce it. And I literally remember sitting, um, I think like in the empire diner on 10th Avenue with like, (laughs) with the yellow pages Mm -hmm. and like when there were yellow pages and we would look for clubs because we knew we wanted to do it in a club. And then we'd get in a taxi and we went and looked at clubs to see, like, could we find a club that would be a good home for this? And we, we I don't know, we probably weren't at the Empire Diner yet because that was when we got into Chelsea and we found the Flamingo, which was on 21st between 10th and 11th. Um, and we eventually, um, Jordan, you know, made a deal with the, that club owner, uh, John Steele, and we we created the donkey show there and that you know that was that was the first big venture of the donkey show which 
then went on, you know, to, it's been in Seoul, Korea, it's been in, you know, uh, France, it's been in Spain, and it, it ran 10 years at, at our club theater in, in Boston, uh, up at the ART, Oberon. Mm. And it seems like Jordan has done well for himself after that. Yes, he has. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I just remember Jordan and I, you know, we were such revolutionaries then. We were like, oh, you know, we don't need Broadway. We'll just, we want to make the revolution elsewhere. But if it could happen, I remember us both saying, if we could bring the revolution to, to Broadway and show what could be possible, we'd be open to that. And, you know, you know, years later, you know, I think he is doing that in many ways through his, you know, what he does on Broadway. We'd like to welcome a new sponsor to Broadway Radio, Audible. As you probably know, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and now podcasts. We have highlighted Audible's work a number of times on Broadway Radio, and as a listener to Broadway Radio, you know that Audible has been supporting the development of new works through their Audible Theater Initiative. So I think that the combination of Broadway Radio listeners and Audible Plus is a perfect match. With Audible Plus, you get full access to the Plus catalog, which is filled with thousands and thousands of select originals audiobooks, and podcasts, including ad-free versions of popular shows, as well as exclusive series. Want to listen to Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Sturridge in Seawall, A Life? Audible Plus. How about Certain Women of an Age by Margaret Trudeau? Audible Plus. And The Half-Life of Marie Curie by Lauren Gunderson. Narrated by Kate Mulgrew and Francesca Faradani. Audible Plus. And there's so much more. Audible Plus connects you to a ton of content that entertains, inspires, and informs. It's easy to find just the right listen, whether it's comedy, romance, suspense, true crime, science fiction, or fitness and wellness. You can even squeeze in a workout or guided meditation without having to go to the gym or a class. Visit audible.com slash Broadway Radio or text Broadway Radio all one word, lowercase, to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial. We'd like to thank Audible for sponsoring Broadway Radio. I, I'm drawing a, a, a line that's always existed for myself, and maybe it might exist for others, and and let me see what you, your thoughts about this are. But like the, the take on The Donkey Show and A Midsummer Night's Dream uh, and the way in which this was... Um, kind of uh, immersive theater uh, seemed to be a, a, a commercialization that had not happened before. And I draw a line between the donkey show and maybe Natasha Pierre mm-hmm. uh, and, and the effect that you have had on Rachel Chavkin and Sammy Kennold and other folks who are involved in Natasha Pierre, and you helped bring that to Broadway. Um, tell us about your involvement in Natasha Pierre. Yeah. So, so, you know, I had been a fan of that show ever since it started at Arts Nova and it was, you know, kept trying to find a way for a continued life and the opportunity presented itself to, to transform our space at ART, right. A traditional proscenium theater into that immersive event that you, you experienced in its, in its inception at Arts Nova, but on a large scale, like, could you get 
650 people, like the equivalent of an orchestra in a Broadway theater? You know, could you do an intervention? Um, and and I had, you know, I've always been interested in this kind of breaking of the fourth wall. It, it, it goes back to my interest in the theater of the 1960s and what the Living Theater did. It goes back to my passion for hair and, you know, what I understood from, you know, studying the history of hair and, and, and all the stories I heard from, from Jim Rado about what happened in hair and Galt McDermott. So, so this was very much, a, you know, this has been my interest is, is theater that breaks the fourth wall very, very specifically and deliberately and intentionally. So with Natasha, uh, uh, the great comet, you know, the, the, the offering was let's, let's see if you can do it here. And then maybe, you know, the folks on Broadway will see this as possible. They've, they've been examples of Broadway theaters really changing, you know, like I'm sure for all of you on this call, you're such great theater scholars and the folks that like shows like Dune, you know, shows I never saw that I'd always read about, you know, mm-hmm. the seats out of the orchestra. So I always thought, well, maybe this could be one of those. So I think we did it at ART. We showed it was possible. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, Bob Wankel was there and he saw it. And I think he 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 saw, he saw what was possible. And then there, there we have it. It, it went on right to, to um, Broadway and, and they made that major architectural intervention that, you know, was so tied to Mimi Lien, the set designer, you know, she really understood how to change space. And she, she thinks architecturally in, in, you know, in a, in a world way, not just sort of the action on the stage. So I, I, I think we contributed to that journey and that we showed what was possible. May I uh, add a fun fact here that has nothing to do uh, with anything beyond the fact that you just mentioned a name. Uh, the first time I saw James Rado, he was an actor in a musical. Do you know what that was? Believe oh. it or not, he was George and she loves me. <laughs> You're kidding. Where no, was that? The, Charles, the Charles Playhouse right downtown Boston. Oh, my God. I and would... She- I and, would do anything to see that. It was <laughs> terrific. And one of the customers coming in was a just starting out Jane Alexander. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, true. Wow. wow. I, <laughs> I was there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thinking about your work with uh, you know, original pieces like Donkey Show and Jagged Little Pill and Waitress versus uh, the revivals that you've directed uh, what are the different, you know, I'm trying to think of the right words here. What are the muscles that you use when creating something original, like, you know, Great Comet or Waitress, uh, versus recreating a classic and trying to connect it to a new generation? Uh, it, it's such a good question. I mean, I, I think I, I loved working on revivals because I'm such a geek for theater history. So I feel like whenever you take on a on a revival, you need to look you need to look at what happened when that show first hit the world, right? That's part of the information that you're taking on as a director when you when you go to mount a revival. Um, and and for me as a director, it's always been you know whatever was the the energy that was unleashed through the original production, I want to I want to I want to recreate that, which may not mean doing the museum version revival, but creating a new production, right, of a revival. Of reviving the show in a new way, but with that same impulse, you know? So I think that was a, that was really what drove me with hair was, you know, the first major revival I did and, and, and every revival since. So in, in that sense, you're, you're dealing with, which I love sort of a cultural 
um, heritage and baggage and energy and, and audience memory. And that just becomes another, another strand of information that is coming to you, right? Another, another layer as a director, like how do you play with that layer of cultural memory? Then with a new musical, um, you know, it's, it's all of that, but like even harder because <laughs> you're not, you're not just dealing with, with, um, you know, the production challenges of getting the casting right and the choreography and the set design. You're also dealing with like, is the story correct? I mean, this is what I just blows my mind when you work on a new musical, a, a revival is hard enough. Any theater production, you know, feels so hard enough to get all the ingredients right, but you are simultaneously in a new musical having to to wash your eyes clean of desire and say, but wait, do we have the story right? And no matter how many readings and workshops you go through, sometimes you don't know that until you're in previews in front of an audience and you're, you know, feeling the feedback and feeling where the audience is with you or where they're not with you. So the willingness to say, okay, we've got to cut this, move this, cut that song, write a new song, you know, that, that's a whole added pressure um, on the creation of a new musical. Although I have to say of most of the new musicals I've done, you know, and, and many new musicals, they're, they're adaptations in their own way, right? So with Jagged Little Pill, for instance, we are dealing with the cultural memory of that album. Mm-hmm. So yes, we're not dealing with, you know, another musical called Jagged Little Pill, but mm-hmm. we're dealing with those lyrics, with the life of Alanis Morissette, with everybody's memory who was alive, you know, in the 90s when that album hit the world, what you feel from it, what you expect from it, very much like the donkey show, right? Like, how do you bring that kind of canon of music into a space where you're going to satisfy everybody and, and make them feel like, ah, this is what I want from an Alanis Morissette experience of Jagged Little Pill, but simultaneously also like the donkey show i am hearing these lyrics in a whole new way given this 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 new story and this new framing um and you know waitress was also based on a film um so so you know many musicals as we look to the new musical of the world whether they're you know inspired by history or 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 a biography or a newspaper article or an album or a movie in a way even news musicals are forms of you know adaptations and, and kind of revivals in their own way well, the word history, of course, brings us to 1776, which you're planning to do, which would have been done by now had the world been kinder to us. But 1776, tell us about that. Yeah. So funnily, I I, I only knew 1776 really because I knew it won the Tony in 1969, beating mm-hmm. out hair. Because I had thought, why why didn't Hair win the Tony? Like, Uh what is this other musical that could possibly be better than Hair? Which to Mm -hmm. me is, you know, such a kind of iconic, you know, musical. So, like, one of the best musicals in the world for me is Hair. But I I had never, um, never listened to it. I had never read it. And I had, I had never even seen the movie. Mm. So um, when I uh, uh, was sent the script. uh, by networks, which is a, a touring company, as you may know, they yeah. to, you know, would you be interested in this? And by the way, the estate uh, and the authors are willing for you to cast it any way you want. Um, I, I, I didn't know a lot about it. And I, I was actually on an airplane flying to London for a waitress in, in the West end. And I, and I took the script and I read it and I was reading it. Um, the libretto, I was reading the script and I was like falling out of my airplane. Mm-hmm. I couldn't mm-hmm. believe how relevant 
the play was. I was like, this is crazy. This is like everything that's going on in our world today. The, you know, the bipartisan divide, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and then when I got to the end of the show and there's this argument, right. That, that, that they have to have a unanimous approval of this declaration mm-hmm. of independence. And what is this clause that, you know, talks about slavery being, you know, uh, abhorrent and, and, and contrary to human nature that Thomas Jefferson puts in the first draft that then gets crossed out in order to pass the Declaration of Independence, you know, unanimously, right? All 13 colonies. I was like, did that happen? Is this, is this Peter Stone creating some really good drama <laughs> at the 11th hour of this musical? And I, I got off the plane and I, I, I immediately emailed the dramaturg at ART. I was like, did you read that script yet? Like, did that actually happen? And my colleague, Ryan McKittrick said, oh yeah, I, I didn't know about it either, but I've researched it. Their whole, you know, their documentary specials on this. And that, that just, I, I, I have to tell you, that led me to this, 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 to the mission for me of why revive, you know, why revive 1776? Because I thought, you know, I, I had a good education. I studied American history. Mm-hmm. I went to university. Why do I not know that, 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 that this, this, this clause about slavery was on the table, mm-hmm. you know, n- not in the 19th century, right. <laughs> but in the eight, you know, in the 1776, why did I not know that it was there mm-hmm. and that it got swept under the rug? And we wonder why we are where we are in America today. And of course I started talking to all my colleagues at Harvard in the history departments and they were like, Oh yeah, you didn't know about that. You didn't know yeah. about the original sin. And I didn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of discussion today about the narrative we're taught in history, mm-hmm. right? And and so I thought, you know, again, going back to full circle and politics and the power of theater, you know, could I do a revival of this musical at this time in America where part of the purpose of doing the musical is to actually reflect on our American history and 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 understand maybe this aspect of our of our past through theater? Through what people, lots of people think about 1776 as a beloved musical. And I've had people stop me before the pandemic and say, oh, I can't believe you're doing 1776. I love that musical. It's what we need, unity. And I was like, have you actually read the show? Because I, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, I, you know, I looked through reviews of the various productions and revivals. And, you know, a lot of reviewers talk about the amazing, you know, stentorian voices of the song molasses to rum i'm like yeah but what about what they're singing about you know i just somehow feel like the content of that show you know had not maybe had not landed the way it could land right now and of course being um emboldened and and able to cast the show uh you know we have a cast that expresses a multiple representation of race race ethnicity and gender right basically our cast expresses all the folks that were not allowed, you know, to be in the room, all the people who were not allowed uh, to express uh, a participation in that debate at the time of, you know, what what should be the founding guiding principles of America, Um, to have that cast alive in 2020, now 2021, you know, be on stage stepping into the shoes of these founding fathers, just for me presented the idea of a multiplicity of information for an audience that could dimensionalize this musical in a way maybe you've never seen 1776 before because it's traditionally cast with all white people, right? That's, that's how it's cast. There have been all women versions of it, but in, 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 and, and playing with 
um, you know, other non-traditional casting, but to really foreground the frame that you have America today taking on the enactment of this piece of history through this musical was what I wanted to do with the show. Uh, Diana, I'd love to ask about, you know, the next generation of directors and where the industry goes from here. You talked about how Anne Bogart mentored you. Are you mentoring uh, the new generation of women directors rising up like Rachel Chavkin and there are so many others who are, you know, have the, you opened the door and now so many other women seem to be walking through. Could you talk a bit about mentorship and what that means? Yeah, I, I, I believe strongly that, you know, you, you need to believe in people, (laughs) you need to believe in humans, you need to believe and support talent, you need to give people more than one chance. Um, And, and any way in which I can do that uh, is part of why I, you know, want to do anything in, in the theater and especially what I would like to see ART be a leader in, you know, how can we, make the space and really prioritize uh, black indigenous people of color voices in leadership roles, in director positions, in the kind of generative author role. Um, And in 1776, um, I am co-directing that with uh, a colleague, Jeffrey Page, who is also the choreographer. And I'm I'm really excited about this model of co-direction. You know, it's, it's, it's not, it's, you see it occasionally in the theater, but you don't often see it. And I'm, I'm just very interested in what it means to co-create in this world and, and the collective vision. It sort of goes back to the living theater, right? It's, you know, what is the power of a collective vision? So supporting and making space for the next generation of all humans uh, and, 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 and supporting that, you know, we will be stronger as an industry, obviously, if we can increase and diversify and increase the, the a multitude of perspectives that, that, the theater should be um, holding, right? The theater, if we are a mirror of the world, the world in this moment is a a world full of diverse, multiple representations. And the theater has to kind of step up and represent that back. This is uh, great, Diane. I have so many more questions for you, but we've reached the end of our time this morning, and perhaps we can have you back after 1776 has returned to Broadway and uh, talk more about it. Of course. Diane Paulus uh, can be found. We have multiple ways to uh, read up on Diane on our show notes at broadwayradio.com or website. We didn't talk about swimming with watermelons. I wanted to talk about, I wanted to talk about endlings at ART, but we'll talk about that all in the future. Diane, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Delighted to be with you this Sunday morning. Well, I sing you the story of a sorrowful lad. He had everything he wanted, didn't want what he had. He had wealth and wealth and name and fame and all of that noise. But he didn't have none of those simple joys. All right. So there's a little preview of uh, what we can expect to see when 1776 makes its way back to Broadway in uh, later in 2021 or 2022, you know. Um... What a wonderful conversation with Diane. And, right? Uh, Terrific lady. Yeah. Really, really wonderful. We have so much more to ask her, so I'm going to hold her to that. And, you know, after 1776 uh, uh, opens up on Broadway, I want to bring her back on and uh, talk more about her other stuff. So, Peter, let's uh, talk about last week's trivia. Do you have an answer? 
Well, two weeks ago, I asked, what do these musicals have in common? One Touch of Venus, Pajama Game, Let It Ride, Cry For Us All, The Look of Love, A Night with Janis Joplin, Rocky, and Odds and Ends of 1917. Well, no one got what I was looking for, so I gave a hint. I said Ruth Sherwood would have easily answered it. She, recall, was the title character of my sister Eileen, who was musicalized in Wonderful Town as a woman who had a hundred easy ways to lose a man. One she noted was to correct a man's grammar. <laughs> and she would have corrected the titles of songs in One Touch of Venus. That's him would be that's he. The pajama game, her is, would be she is. Let it ride, I'll learn ya, would be I'll teach ya. Cry for us all, who to love, should be, and remember how Donna Murphy did this in Wonderful Town? Whom to love, to make it very clear that there's an M at the end. The look of love, one less bell to answer. No, one fewer bell to answer. A night with Janis Joplin, me and Bobby McGee. No, Bobby McGee and I. And Rocky ain't down yet. I'm not down yet. And finally, a musical called Odds and Eds of 1917. The further it is from Tipperary. No, the farther it is from Tipperary. Well, and still no one got it. So what can I say? I gave another question last week, and only one person got that, Brigadude. And that was, what do these hit musical listed in this order for a germane reason have in common? And the musicals were Showboat, The Boys from Syracuse, Oklahoma, Gypsy, Mame, Follies, and cabaret. Now, um, it, it, it one would seem that they all go in uh, sequence, but no, cabaret opened before uh, Follies, so it wasn't that. No, Ethan Morden titled his books about musicals from the 20s to the turn of the century by naming songs from these shows. So his 20s book was called Make Believe from Showboat. 30s was Sing for Your Supper from The Boys from Syracuse. 40s was Beautiful Morning from Oklahoma. Gypsy uh, was the 50s, Coming Up Roses. Open a New Window from the 60s was Mame. And 70s was One Last Kiss from Follies. And Cabaret, he did the 80s and beyond. He didn't like musicals very much from that point. And so he mm -hmm. just wanted to cram them into one volume. And that was called The Happiest Corpse You've Ever Seen, a song from Cabaret. So um, only Brigadoon got that. Let's see if we can do better with a different Ethan Morden reference. What Tony-winning musical includes the subtitle of one of these aforementioned books in one of its songs. Oh, I thought you were going to say something else. No, that's it. That's it. No more that, was the whole, that was the whole question? Yes. How are we possibly supposed to get that? <laughs> Tony-winning musical, it already uh, limits them to 70-odd shows. I mean, really, uh, that's, I think that's very gracious of me. I didn't have to say Tony winning, but I will to make it easier. But well, <laughs> if you have an answer to this, email us at, at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. I, th that Ethan Morden, that guy really knows how to succeed. <laughs> he, really, he really does. Uh, the best <laughs> and, of us all. <laughs> and that little giggle there was from Michael Portantier, who has joined us. Michael, welcome to uh, today's show, just in time to give us your rare musical moment. Yes, and it's inspired indirectly, I guess, by last week's conversation with John Lloyd Young. Uh, obviously, since we were talking to John Lloyd Young, we spoke a lot about Jersey Boys. Uh, but one thing that wasn't mentioned was, I, I don't know if you all have read this, but there is 
uh, been talk lately that there will be a streaming version of Jersey Boys and that Nick Jonas is in talks to play Frankie Valley, which uh, um, I was a little surprised at that because, uh, you know, I mean, first of all, anyone who plays Frankie Valley, I think it's felt that there should be uh, an attempt to sing in the style that he sang in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, as far as I know, Nick Jonas is not known for singing in that style. So in in that respect, it was a surprise to me. But um, on the other hand, I did see, I was lucky enough to see Nick Jonas when he went into How to Succeed, uh, The Last Revival, uh, as a replacement for Daniel Radcliffe. And I was very, very pre- pleasantly surprised Um by his singing as well as his acting. I, uh, I'll never forget, I forgot at the time that he got, uh, I remembered uh, at the time that he got all of the laughs in the show that I thought uh, many of them had been missed by Daniel Radcliffe. And I also, I have no way of proving this, but I, I was thinking that perhaps that Michael Yuri, who also went into the show, um, had maybe worked with Nick because he really was very, very funny, and he seemed very comfortable with that kind of comedy. Uh, at any rate, um, the uh, there was a full-length cast album of that How to Succeed with Daniel Radcliffe, but there also exists, uh, I, I guess, an EP, or uh, uh, anyway, a few tracks were released with Nick Jonas uh, after he went into the show. And I, I suppose those would be considered fairly rare. So I uh, thought we would end with Brotherhood of Man, which is also a good song to end with uh, uh, because it is such an uptune, uh, as, as Peter <laughs> just mentioned. Um, so that's, that's going to be our rare musical moment uh, for this week. Brotherhood of Man with uh, Nick Jonas as J. Pierpont Finch. Mm. Wait a minute, Wally, before you make All right. So on behalf of Genitus of Fox, Michael Portant here, and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. And other men may carry cards as members of the diners. Still others wear a golden key or small Greek letter pin. But I have learned there's one great club that all of us are in. There is a brotherhood of man, a benevolent brotherhood of man a noble tie that binds all human hearts and minds into one brotherhood of man your lifelong membership is free keep giving each brother all you can oh aren't you proud to be in that fraternity the great big brotherhood of man now you see wally i want you to remember that before you consider firing mr bigley well see i know what's on your mind you'd like to clear the whole crowd from top to bottom that's the obvious move but stop and think one man may seem incompetent another not make sense while others look like quite a waste of company expense they need a brother's leadership so please don't do them in 
Remember mediocrity is not a mortal sin. There we're in, in the, the brotherhood of men, dedicated to giving all we can. Oh, aren't you proud to be in that fraternity? The Down with double D's. Oh, 